So my younger daughter was in the sixth or seventh grade. Her name's Anna. And we were trying to figure out a sport for her. And we, she and I went out into the driveway. We had a basketball goal and a big driveway at that time. And we began to play basketball. And so I'm a big uh, proponent that you've got to be able to use both hands when you're playing basketball. So we made her dribble with her left hand and drive to the left over and over again, made her work with her right hand. Gave her a really sweet jump shot. She was out there in the driveway and she had really good form. You know, stick your hand in the basket and everything. She could, she could sink some jump shots and stuff. And so she looked good in that sense. And she went over to the middle school here in Lexington. And the coach there saw her somewhere dribbling around and shooting and looking good. And he, he asked her to try out for the team. So she tried out for middle school basketball in the eighth grade, and it was a pretty tough squad. She made the middle school basketball team. She got a uniform and a, a little lady Wildcats bag and everything. And really, that's where the trouble started, because what happened was uh, she had played one-on-one -on -one with me, and, and, you know, and she had played a little bit with her brothers, but she'd never really played like team basketball anywhere. So it's one thing to stand in your driveway and sink jump shots. It's another thing to do that when you're being double teamed. And it's another thing to be able to dribble with either hand and look up and find out who's doing a backdoor cut and feed them to, on the baseline to shoot a layup, all those kinds of things. So basically, she froze and faltered when it came to the team aspects of basketball. And I asked her permission to, to share that introduction with you, and she agrees with that assessment of what happened. And I think that sort of paints a picture of what can happen sometimes in our own lives as believers. American Protestants are very, very big about our individual relationship with the Lord. And that's actually not a bad thing. We want you and I want to have a personal individual relationship with the Father through the work of Christ by faith. But we often have trouble translating that into a team sport. And as you know, when you come to know Christ, you're joined to a body with other people. And particularly when love is difficult, when love involves correction, when there are double teams, when you're just trying to do your best to dribble the ball on your own, that you, you can falter in loving other people. So today we want to really talk from 1 John uh, about our knowledge of God really is completed and fulfilled as we receive his love and then as we love one another. So there's going to be a, a strong impetus behind this that being a believer in Christ automatically and inextric inextricably makes you part of the team, part of the church, and it brings you into relationships where you have to love other people. So if you have your worship guide, it's on page 10, and I think it'll be on the screen above. This is the 1984 NIV translation again from 1 John uh, chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son 
as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. And the summary of what we're going to say today is that you have the power and ability to love your brothers and sisters in the, in the church, in the body, because of the life that has been given to you through the holy love of the Father through Christ. That's a long thesis statement, but basically you can love because you have life that flows out of a holy love from the Father. Love, life, flowing from a holy love. So when you look at this text, you see very clearly on the surface, and I think you would agree that in, in John's letter and even in his gospel, it's very clear that knowledge of God it can't be dissociated from loving the brothers, loving people within the body. Verse 7, dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. And then in verse uh, 11, it says, dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. And then this, this capstone verse is really important. It says, no one has ever seen God the Father. Now John's very clear that we've seen God the Son. No one's ever seen God the Father. But if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete. And, and I think the ESV may use perfect there. His love is completed. So just to receive the love of God is actually completed and fulfilled as we express that love to other people. So the text is very clear about our obligation to love one another. And what do I mean when I say love? I'm going to borrow Dallas Willard's definition. Love is to will the good of another, according to the Scripture. What is good? To will with my heart, with my life, the good of another person. And not just theoretically, but it comes out both in words and in actions, to will the good of another. Now, I want to uh, illustrate uh, one of the things that this text is saying by getting you to do a little physics with me. Try not to get your eyes to glaze over. But I want to submit to you that you're not aware in terms of your senses empirically that the earth is spinning. Right? We're all here, and the earth is flying around its axis. It's also flying around the sun. We're hurtling through space right now, but none of us really are very much aware of that. So that, that motion is invisible to us in the way that God the Father is invisible to us. You can't see him or taste him. But there was a cool guy uh, in the 1800s named Foucault. He was a French physicist. And he came up with an idea, and the idea is called Foucault's pendulum. And many of you have seen these pendulum, pendulae. They hang from several stories in usually science museums. There's one at the Franklin Institute in Philadelphia. Uh, they're scattered around the United States. And usually this is two or three stories worth of cable with a very large and heavy pendulum at the bottom that is pointed down to a point. And what you can do is you can take that pendulum and swing it on a certain line, and the pendulum will actually stay on that line. 
And the appearance that it gives you, uh, what you usually do is put some bowling pins around the edge. And over the course of time, very slowly, that pendulum will, it will look like it's rotating. It looks like the pendulum is rotating. And successively, the, the bowling pins get knocked off of both sides. And at our latitude, in about 32 hours, it will knock down all those bowling pins. And what's happening is, actually, the pendulum stays on the same axis, and the earth is rotating beneath it. And so this is the classic, Foucault's pendulum is the classic demonstration that the earth really is rotating around an axis. And the same thing is true in the church when we actually love one another with Christ-empowered love. He says it becomes clear that God lives in us, that the Holy Spirit is present. And this is a long way of saying what what Jesus said to the apostles in the upper room, they'll, they'll know that you're my disciples by how you love one another. So that, that love is bringing uh, to visibility the invisible presence of the Father through the Holy Spirit. So we want to just you know, apply that. We're not going to dwell on it a long time. We've, we've talked about this before, that we're called to love one another both in deeds and in words. Now, You remember John emphasized deeds before. Don't love one another just with talk, but with with actions. But it's also true that many, many times we love one another by listening and by speaking to one another for strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. That's what the New Testament says that prophets do. They, They speak for strengthening, encouragement, and comfort for the good of another person. And so we just want to ask you, the elders have been having a long discussion about uh, what we say about love. We say that we, we, our mission is to worship, love, and serve. And I think everyone agrees that, that love can be very broad. Uh, Anita Bolin is a congregational care leader, and she has a team of people, and she mobilizes people here through small groups. There's all kinds of love that goes on in action, particularly through that ministry. The Romans do the same thing. The deacons do the same thing. There's probably lots of interaction that never registers on anybody's radar between members of the body that express love. But the one structural way that we emphasize is being in a small group. So just to to ask you this question, where do you find another group of believers and you begin to know their stories, their history, their sins, their gifts, their graces, their strengths, so that you can will good for them in circumstances that they find themselves in. So it's, it's, it's really a challenge to, to be connected here more than uh, simply coming to worship on Sunday. And I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're here. But that is the beginning, worship here and in, in CE to a, a greater connection that involves real relationships. And so, and this is where our, this is, and this is where our, um, our ability to dribble and shoot by ourselves gets really challenged. You know, what do you do when you actually really get to know people? And particularly to know, uh, I think, their personality structure that lends itself to sinful patterns over and over again that seems, uh, not real amenable to change sometimes. How do you persevere and persist 
in loving people in that way. So we have this, we have this question, is, is, do you want to know the Lord? Do you want to have an experiential knowledge of Jesus? We've said that this, this series is about knowing that you know. Well, a lot of that knowledge comes as you're broken and see your inability to love other people and have to trust Christ to give you power to move towards other people in love. And I think this is especially difficult for us when it comes to correction. Uh, Those of you who've done pastoral ministry or been in pastoral ministry or led ministries, you often have someone coming to you saying, so-and-so's out of line. Right? And we know that the biblical model of this is for you in humility to go to the person yourself directly and say, help me to understand what's happening here and to listen and to love. So this is the, this is the challenge that's before us. And here's the, the, the thing about it is that you have the power to do this. You have the power to love one another when things are difficult. And that's really what most of this text is about. So we've said the command, the command's here, love one another. Well, where do the resources come for that? We want to talk then about the the primary resource that you have if you know Jesus is that you have been given his life by the Holy Spirit. It says everyone in verse 7b, the second half of 7, everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. And so you see that this idea that Jesus came in verse 9, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. That being born of God is having the life of God given to you from the outside. That you have capabilities if you've been joined to Christ that you never would have had naturally on your own. Now, we've talked about this over the weeks. This is a, a major theme of the, book of, uh, of the book of 1 John, is that there you are, dead in your trespasses and sins. <clears throat> you can put on a show of loving other people, but it's not really a God-centered love. It doesn't have the glory of God as its aim. And that's where we all start off in our sin. But the Holy Spirit brings the gospel, this message of Christ crucified and raised, And he applies it to the heart and gives you a new heart and a new mind so that you can believe that is what it means to be born of God. And that's what it means to begin to have the Holy Spirit work in your life and give you a new life that is greater than your dying natural life that you were given. That's how the love of God has expressed us, that we might live through him. And so really, again, John is, he is, bringing up the things that we hear in his gospel. What does Jesus say to Mary and Martha? I'm the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though he dies. What what does he say? I've come, I'm the way and the truth and the life. I've come that you, you might have life and have it abundantly. So there's this abundant life that comes as as you trust in Jesus. And he says, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink the one who believes in me. For from within him, that is within Christ, will flow rivers of living water. The water of life flows out of Christ into believers. Now, I think for most of you here, this is kind of all 
old hat in a sense. That I'm telling you things that, that if you've believed for more than a few years, you probably have either read in, in John, but it's the very thing that we forget experientially. Uh, just this morning, uh, someone put me onto a Breakpoint article that was right along these lines. There's a man in England, his, <clears throat> pardon me, his name is Clive Waring, and he was or is a musician with the BBC, and uh, he had been married to a woman named Deborah Waring. She was from the United States, and in 1985, he developed a febrile illness that had a, a protracted high fever, and coming out of that illness, he had both anterograde and retrograde amnesia. And what that means is he couldn't remember anything from his past and he couldn't gain new, new memories. That's the anterograde part. So think about this. This man was consigned to live in the 30 seconds that he was in right now. Nothing could be gained in the future and nothing could be remembered from his past. He couldn't remember the names of his children, the name of his wife. He couldn't remember anything. And if she were with him and walked out of the room, <clears throat> pardon me, when, when she came back, he couldn't remember who she was or that she had even been there. So for seven years, Deborah Waring really struggled to love him, to get help, to, to be there with him as his wife. And finally, the, the trajectory of that overwhelmed her, and she threw up her hands and left. She left him there and came back to the United States. In the United States, she tried to fill up her life with other things, other relationships, food and alcohol. She tried to reestablish her, her work as an artist. And eventually, she came to the conclusion, I would say, by God's common grace, that she really needed to be back in England with her husband. She flew back there and, and landed and, and saw, again, the impossibility of that situation. So she reached out to the only person that she knew who was a believer in Christ. And that person shared the gospel with her and prayed for her that she would have power to love in this incredibly difficult situation. And she said that at that moment, she was so filled with God's love for her, his acceptance of her, that everything changed for her and that she knew that she had power to continue in this relationship. Now, this has been the subject of a lot of documentaries and other, other things like that. But what I want to, you to see is that sort of dramatic nature of being born from above that gives life to a person based on the love of God, that gives them power to love in very difficult circumstances. So you and I have to ask ourselves the question, have I been born again? Now, do I know Jesus Christ? Has he given me his spirit? Do I see his spirit empowering me to love the people around me, particularly people who are difficult to love? Do I, do I really see that? Now, we want to be careful about applying that standard because uh, this woman, Deborah Waring, was put in a very desperate, clearly impossible situation so that God's supply to her was very dramatic and, and sudden and seen. And it doesn't always pan out that way. But, but one of the questions that you can ask yourself, do I see myself going through life saying to myself, Lord, I don't want to enter into this situation. This looks like dying this is difficult. I, 
I need you, risen Christ, to give me power to move towards this person, these people, cheerfully and with the will for their good. Is that a regular thing? And this is a call to, this is a call to repentance for us, isn't it? Because we're a very mobile and generally affluent people who have cars and means of escape. I don't really have to be entangled with your life, right? I can just go do something else. If you live in a village in Africa, you can't do that. <laughs> you're kind of restricted to the place you are, and, and your village mates and your family, they're your people. You don't have any other, I can't, you can't just go over to another church or escape to some other place. You have to work out the things that are before you. And so being born again, being born of God, having the life of God coming from the love of God through his only begotten son gives you power to sit still and to say, I'm going to be empowered to love people in this situation, even when it's difficult. And I would say one of the things that we need to see about this is the feel of that. And this is really important. The feel of that is not triumphant. The feel of that is the feel of dying to yourself, of having almost like chest pain, like this is really hard. I don't want to have this conversation. You, th- you make up 20 reasons to put off going to somebody and having either a difficult conversation or even going to somebody to encourage them. It's always, love is always going to cost us something, and, and it's usually always going to have the feel of dying Otherwise, it's just going to be payment for services that you expect in return, right? Isn't this the way marriage often works? I'm giving to you, but it's really a quid pro quo thing. And when you have something happen, like happened with the wearings, then you can understand and see, does God really have a supply of living water for me? that I can love long-term even when I don't expect to get anything back. And this is, this is where we're weak. This is where we, we can dribble and we can shoot in the driveway, but when it, when it comes to team play, we often falter. So we really want to take this as a, as, a, as a good news thing, that Jesus really is alive, and that he really does give life to those who believe so that they have power to love. And then we want to just go on then to emphasize Uh, How does that love come to us? Well, this text is really specific. It tells us both in verse 9, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live. And then verse 10, this is love, not that we loved God. So here, here you have the model, almost like Clive Waring. He essentially has nothing to give back to his wife. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Now, the NIV 1984 translated this word, uh, helasmos, as an atoning sacrifice. You know that the ESV and older versions have the word propitiation, which we don't use. But the key thing for you to get about this is that what Jesus did was that in dying on the cross, he was turning away the just, holy judgment of God the wrath of God, the the penalty of death for the sins of his people. 
This word uh, that in, in Greek can, can also mean simply to reconcile things. And if you, if you lay that down on it and exclude holy justice, you gut the gospel. And the, and the whole point I'm trying to make here is this. The triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is both perfectly and infinitely, completely holy and just, and at the same time, infinitely, perfectly, and completely loving. And apparently, it seems that, that some people can't handle that. And that's why I'm saying the love of God and the life of God comes to us through a holy love that sends Christ to the cross to make atonement for the sins of his people. And now, the reason I'm belaboring that is because I don't spend a lot of time doing apologetics and listening to people who are saying things that aren't true. It just kind of irritates and annoys me. But I suppose I have a responsibility as a pastor to know some of those kinds of things. And I actually went out over the last couple of weeks and listened uh, to a few of these things, and I was heart-stricken. I was... I was dumbfounded. I couldn't believe some of the things that I was hearing. And I'm going to just read you a quote. I'll read you a quote in just a second. But one of the people who was kind of put up in front of me was saying they don't want the atonement to be turning away God's wrath. They don't want God to be holy and just to punish his sins. They just want him to be loving. And one of the guys... and. Pardon, pardon what I consider the blasphemy. I'm just trying to educate you some. Does God really love us, or has he just been paid off? It, just, it, makes, me, it makes me sick to even say that out loud. Um, another person said, uh, to say that the cross was, was Jesus taking judgment and wrath for sins out of... Out of well, not out of love, God, that he was taking judgment and wrath makes God a cosmic child abuser. Um, one of these guys said, the cross is not a picture of payment. The cross is a picture of forgiveness. Good Friday is not about divine wrath. Good Friday is about divine love. Calvary's not where we see how violent God is. Calvary is where we see how violent our civilization is. The justice of God is not retributive. The justice of God is restorative. And I just want to say, that's an evil... You know, when, when John says they went out from us because they weren't part of us, this is it. This, this, is, this is completely out of bounds. And I, I kind of want to shout and scream, but I want to also be calm so I don't come across really too polemic. But God's love and justice is restorative because it is retributive. What I mean by that is that he restores us to relationship by removing his holy and just wrath that we deserve. And, and, to, to, and I'm looking for, for students who are going away who might hear this stuff or you, or you go out there and you listen to it. It just breaks my heart. It, it denigrates God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and really the whole plan of salvation. Why do I say that? Because whatever you want to say about the lexical range of the word elasmos, it has to mean what the rest of the Bible says. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death. 
And that there's no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. The Bible says in Isaiah 53 that the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. That it was real punishment of death and separation from God for the sins of his people. That's retributive justice. That's what's called technically penal substitutionary atonement. And without that, you don't get restoration. And what I hear from some of these people is somehow Jesus dies to, to reconcile us with God in some way that doesn't involve removal of holy justice from our account. But that is not the gospel. And that's why you can say that God showed his love among us by sending his only son to be an atoning sacrifice, or if you want to use the word propitiation, you can for our sins. And that is the gospel that we preach. And as we come to the Lord's table today, that is what we're going to be celebrating. And I just want to say, uh, so that you can have some theology behind this, did you notice that I've been saying all along that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all planned this salvation? And one of the things that you always want to be saying to yourself is that the purposes of God, the triune God, we believe in one God, right? And he has one set of purposes and one plan. Among the, the members of the Trinity, they all agree with themselves, even though they have different roles in executing it as we see them. So the father sends the son. He doesn't send himself. And the son humbles himself and comes. And the son dies and the son is raised to life. And the Holy Spirit applies that and is sent from the risen Christ. All those things are true. They're differentiation, but they all have the same purpose. And so one of the things that I want to say to, to the folks, what are you doing with, with the book of Revelation when it says that Jesus is going to come riding on a, a, war, a war stallion and that he's going to tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God? That's in Revelation. You can read it there. These things are not in opposition. The, the members of the Trinity are not in opposition to each other on these things. And this is the gospel that we preach, and this is the gospel, the good news on which we've taken our stand. And so uh, I, I've said all that. Now, I just want to come back and say, if you're in Christ, what this means for you is that your sins are forgiven. That no matter how badly you fell yesterday or this week or how all the deficits that you see, and loving other people, if you're entrusting yourself to Christ, it means that he's really made full atonement and taking the entire wrath of God and the curse of death on your behalf so that he is now your life. Since then, you've been raised with Christ. You've been raised with him. You have life, and it all flows out of the Father's love and is accomplished through the atoning sacrifice of Christ. And if you're in him, that means you're justified, you're, you're forgiven and declared righteous, you're adopted, you're a son or daughter of God, and, and you want to practice and fight by, by rejoicing in the love of God for you. Jesus really did his work well. And so just to, to bear down again, what do you do then when you see your deficits in loving the people who are close to you? When you see your deficits in loving people within the body? Well, you repent, you make plans to be different, but what you do is you come back and drink from the well of God's love. We love because he first loved us. 
And you come back and you drink and drink and drink until your heart is full of the love of the Father for you in Christ through his atoning work so that you're filled up to go and give that love to other people. So this is the message, uh, the good news of the gospel. And then what we'll see then is that his love is then made complete in us. Well, as we come to the Lord's table, we really want to see that this is a visible representation exactly of everything that we've said, that we're going to have bread and wine representing the body of Christ broken under the judgment of God for sinners, his blood poured out as an atoning sacrifice. But we're not going to do it individually or alone. We're going to come around tables and gather together saying that we have communion, we have love for one another because of the gift of the Spirit in Christ. So with that said, let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you for this time to look into your word. And we, we ask you, Lord, to meet with us now by your Holy Spirit uh, around the table. Would you please, Lord, have your way with us, uh, make yourself known to us. We really want, want to know you by experiencing your love and by loving one another. Have your way with us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.